Did the neuronal and glial populations differentiate the same as in the wild type mice? Yeah, so what we, what we think based on our results is that uh, they differentiate differently in the mutant. You are talking every day to many different people, they have their different projects uh, and you feel that you are doing something for them. Why being a princess if you can be a scientist? Welcome to the 2021 edition of Women in Histology, brought to you by the National Society for Histotechnology. This year's series features incredible scientists changing lives in the lab and making a difference to advance STEM within the community. In this episode, Andrea Transu sat down with Dr. Elisa Balducci to discuss her research journey with Dirk 1A and to talk about what she's doing now that she no longer is working in the research lab also about her work with science outreach programs. Hi everyone, my name is Andrea Transu and I'm the manager of, of the Histology Corps for the Hermelin Brain Tumor Center at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. So we work for principal investigators as well as the NIH and the Department of Defense. And we focus primarily on gliomas and specialize in using patient-derived xenografts for our studies. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Dr. Elisa Balducci, who has extensive experience in biomedical research and biotech. She comes to the table with a wealth of project management skills, a business-oriented mindset, and a robust scientific background. On top of all of this, she is fluent in three languages and has a genuinely kind and gentle spirit. So Dr. Balducci, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into your work with Dirk 1A. Okay, thank you very much, Andrea, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. Yeah, my name is Elisa Balducci, and uh, my background uh, is a bit uh, a mix of industry and science. It's also international. I am Italian originally, and I studied my university degree in biotechnology in Italy. Then I moved to Spain for the PhD in neuroscience, and then... Um, I had, uh, let's say, a couple of years in the UK, and finally I came here in the US. Now I am based in uh, Miami, Florida, and I work for Agilent Technology as a marketing program manager in company and diagnostics. Nice, that's so incredible. So tell us about Dirk 1A, why this project? Okay, so this, this starting started a long time ago, and it's uh, actually very good to talk about that again, because it was uh, an important part of my life. I was, I started to work on Dirk 1A when, um, uh, when I started my PhD. I had just finished my, my university degree and I was looking for uh, a new challenge in, uh, in research. So I had uh, the opportunity to look at this laboratory. Uh, it was in Barcelona and the PI was Mario Narbones. And she, was, she had a project with this uh, mouse model that it's a, a model with only one functional copy of uh, Dirk 1A. And the reason why she was working uh, on, this on this model is because Dirk 1A is um, in chromosome 21. So the triplication of this uh, gene that codes for a protein kinase was associated with some uh, developmental defect of Down syndrome. So she created this mouse and was very interesting for me, first of all, to see that the description of this mouse had a phenotype that was very strong. 
the complete knockout of Virquane was lethal. So it indicates that this gene was essential to life. And then uh, the, the mouse with one copy of the gene had um, a very um, strong developmental delay and uh, some uh, autism uh, phenotypes. For example, these mice, they didn't care about other mice, but they would spend a lot of time playing with the little things in the cage. So what was really interesting for me is, uh, first of all, I love neuroscience and uh, I wanted to keep working on neuroscience. I did uh, a project at the end of my uh, university on Alzheimer's disease. So I, I, I wanted to keep working on that. And then what Mariona told me, the PI, is that she wanted to start looking at the differential gene expression of the brain of these mutant mice because she wanted to understand really what are the drivers of this development and delay. And my background was very molecular. So I was super excited to, to take this challenge. So we got started and I started in our lab and continued the, all the project on the Quane. Beautiful, beautiful. So how did the project start? Okay, so we wanted to look at this uh, gene expression in, uh, in the cerebral cortex during development. So we decided to choose two developmental stages that are important uh, in the development of the brain in mice, and they are P0 and P7, that is the day of birth and one week after birth. And we analyzed uh, what the differences in gene expression between the wild type and the mutant mice. And in these stages, we know that the, the cerebral cortex that is very important for the cognitive functions, it's uh, actively differentiating. And it was interesting to see that both uh, at both stages, at P0 and P7, there were many genes that were differentially expressed uh, in the mutant compared to the wild type. And there, there was, and there were genes of all types, of course. When you do these uh, wild genome screenings, it's very difficult then uh, to focus on something that makes sense because everything looks interesting and uh, you tend to start looking to something that you already know. So we, I, I found a group of genes that was um, interesting to me. And it's, um, there were genes that are involved either in the glial differentiation or in the glial function. And the, when I say glial, I, I mean uh, astrocytes and oligodendrocytes that are one of the three cell populations that together with the neurons that are generated by the neural progenitors. So the reason why I thought it was interesting is because uh, usually when you see a developmental delay, it's easy to go for a group of genes that are involved in uh, synaptic, synaptic function or um, axiogenesis. But the glia usually is considered like um, a support to the neurons. So the astrocytes, uh, they have like a repair function and the oligodendrocytes, they create the myelin around the axon. So they allow the fast uh, transmission of the, um, of, the, uh, of the messages between neurons. But usually they are not the, the main uh, focus of, the, um, uh, of study in uh, neurodevelopmental defects. Uh, even if there are like more and more indications that the glia has a role also in the, um, in the brain function. And I think that red syndrome is one of the clear examples of this, where the glia has been associated with the brain function. 
So that is where I decided to follow that path and say, okay, now I want to see if in these mice there is a problem in the development of the of the glial um, cells or the glial, yeah, of the glial cells and the glial function. So, okay, so you know that we have the differences in glial-related genes, but why is that? Yeah, that that is, uh, yeah, that, that was actually a, a good question. The first question, okay, the genes are altered. Now, what does it mean? It means that uh, there is a, a change in the fate of the progenitors, so they differentiate differently in different proportions between neurons, uh, astrocytes, and oligodendrocytes, or it means that uh, the glial cells are dying more or less than the neurons, or maybe their function is uh, impaired. So maybe the structural proteins like MBP in the case of oligodendrocytes or GFAP are expressed differently because it's the function itself that is uh, impaired. So we had all these questions and we started looking at the, at the cell death, first of all. So we, we discarded different um, situations because we, we did a preliminary study and we decided to keep working uh, on the question, uh, are the progenitors differentiating differently in the mutant compared to the wild type? So we wanted to see if the cellular fate was affected. And then it could indicate that DIRCONA is in a way involved in deciding the fate of the neural progenitors. Do you have any question? Um, go ahead. I'm actually excited. I'm just listening and, and excited to hear. Keep going. Keep going. It's also exciting to, yeah, to go back and tell the story again. Because during, uh, when you do research, sometimes it's painful, but when you tell the story at the end, it's much nicer. So, Okay, so we wanted to look at the fate of the progenitors. And um, we decided to use an approach that was in vitro first, and then we wanted to, uh, to validate the results in vivo. So for the in vitro, we had uh, like a, a system that was uh, very nice. It's called the Neurosphere, Neurosphere Cultures. So we went to um, analyze the, the cerebral cortex of the mice. I think the embryonic stage was E14. At this stage, we considered the cerebral cortex uh, made of progenitors, basically almost only progenitors. When we take those progenitors, you can cut, uh, put them in a medium that allows the proliferation of the progenitors. So these progenitors, they start proliferating and they create like a sphere that is a clonal, yeah, it's a clone of the same progenitor. You can maintain these uh, neurospheres for many passages. So in this way, you grow and you increase the population of the progenitors. Then at some point when you have enough progenitors, you can decide to start differentiating. Instead of keeping them in a medium that uh, allows the proliferation, you you put them uh, in a plate and you let them differentiate. And in this way, we, I remember we were leaving the, um, the progenitors differentiate for one week or 10 days. And after that, we started to, to use the markers for uh, the neurons, for the oligodendrocytes or the um, astrocytes. And then we started to count and say, okay, we had a population of progenitors in wild type and mutants. Now, are the differentiated population different in the two progenitors? And the answer was yes. 
So actually, we were, let's say, on, in the right track. We, we found out that uh, the alteration of the genes that we had observed uh, was associated to a different differentiate of, differentiation of the progenitors. And specifically, we were seeing more astrocytes and less oligodendrocytes. And this was cool. So then next step, we have to see if we reproduce the same result in vivo. And uh, to do that, then basically we had to take uh, the embryos of the mutant and the wild type uh, during the embryonic, embryonic stage. So we fixed uh, the cerebral cortex and we did immunohistochemistry on, on the tissue. So we could see in vivo if the, the brain at this uh, developmental stage had a different ratio of cell population. And again, we, we found the same results. So it was, uh, everything was coming together. And I think this was an exciting moment of the, um, of the work because it, I was coming from a molecular background. So I, I was more uh, about genetics. I didn't see to see anything. I didn't need to see any result with my eyes. I could trust the genetic result. But then when you are in your own project uh, and it's uh, years and years long, it's very nice when you see that the molecular part uh, is confirmed in vitro, is confirmed in vivo. So everything uh, makes sense together. And all these techniques uh, can be, are, are useful and they give you a piece of information. So that was very rewarding <laughs> at that point. <laughs> Yeah, it is rewarding. So let me ask you this. Did the neuronal and glial populations differentiate the same as in the wild type mice? Yeah. So what we what we think based on our results is that uh, they differentiate differently in the mutant. So now we have uh, a mouse with an altered population of neuronal and glial cells. And uh, and then the next step uh, is what uh, I, it's still ongoing and some, somebody in the lab is still working on, on the continuation of this project. And it what so how this affects the function of this uh, population. And uh, even if, if we want to look beyond is uh, how is this connected with the impairment uh, of the, um, of the cognitive functions of these uh, mice. So that's why then we started some functional studies. And uh, for example, when you look at the oligodendrocytes and you want to do functional studies, then what we did was to look if the, uh, the myelination was uh, correct in the, in the mutant as in the wild types. And this is one of the, of the studies that are still ongoing. And my, so we were a, a good team. So my colleagues are still uh, working in part of this project. Nice. So as you were studying this, were there other things uh, coming into the pipeline um, that gave you more or less information or, or drove the direction that you went into? Ah, uh, yes, yes. There are my, yeah, this was uh, interesting. There were a few things, well, there are many things coming up all the time while you do research. But uh, I think the most important for us, for the whole lab, not only for me, was uh, to that during this uh, research project, uh, it was uh, described for the first time that there are humans that have a loss of function of DIRQA. So 
it means that we were studying a mouse model for a human condition that uh, hadn't been described uh, yet. The, the initial idea was to study this model to understand better Down syndrome, but then we realized that uh, there was a, a syndrome that is Dirkwan uh, A insufficiency in human that has a very strong phenotype, it's autism spectrum uh, disorder, and uh, there is developmental delay, autism, everything that we were observing in the mouse model. This was super important for us because it kind of gave sense to what we were doing from a human and clinical perspective as well. And one of the things that have been described later later on is the, the fact that the brain of these humans, they also had... Uh, an increased uh, astrocyte population. So there was an alteration in the glial population in the human, uh, in the human Dirkwane uh, heterozygous as well. So that was very important. Okay, so this work that you're talking about is has already been published. And I know that you are n- no longer with, with this lab, but are you still following or do you still have your hand in anything uh, going on right now? Yeah, so a part of the study has been published and uh, there is another part this, that is more functional that it's, it's uh, in process of publication. I am connected with the lab and with the project uh, and they are doing a great, uh, a great work to continue that. I'm very proud uh, of the team. That's still good that you have that ability though and it's good that you are following. I'm sure that um, your expertise is just immeasurable. So now that you're not, there and and Dirk 1A is still your baby, but kind of in the teenage going away to college stage of its life. Um, What's next for you? After like five, six years, I left uh, the lab because my PhD was, um, came to an end. And um, I was looking for a new challenge and, uh, and they moved to the industry. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I moved to the industry because I, I, I really enjoy the fact that when you work in the industry, you can uh, help many, many scientists instead of just uh, being uh, concentrated in one project, one gene, one protein. You are talking every day to many different people. They have their different projects uh, and you feel that you are doing something for them to help achieve their uh, objectives, their scientific objective, and you provide uh, the technologies. So that was the main motivation to move to the industry, and uh, I'm still in the industry, so I I like it, apparently. <laughs> and so first I worked more in genomics, and now in uh, currently with Agilent, I'm working in companion diagnostics, which is more, it's closer to the clinical uh, outcome of research because you see directly how a biomarker can affect the treatment of patients. It's exciting to see how, yeah, how people work so hard, uh, really giving a better uh, life to patients of all type. I worked in neuroscience, now I work more in cancer, but uh, the bottom line is that uh, the scientific community is, is great, is amazing, and everybody is doing uh, something that maybe it looks uh, to drop in the ocean when you work on it, and sometimes it's very frustrating because you don't see the result that you are expecting, or you don't see uh, like why certain things uh, come, uh, certain results uh, are as they are. But then when you see the whole picture, it's incredible what the community can achieve. I can imagine that 
both of these were very rewarding. And I, I can see that your expertise is well used in both uh, aspects of the field. But I really want to know which one you like the most and, and why is that? Ah, this is a, an interesting question. <laughs> I, I think uh, I like being in the industry because uh, it reflects my more probably my personality, my, my mindset. It gives me the opportunity to interact with more people and to have results quicker than in science. <laughs> this is. <laughs> but I have to say that the, the, the people that I've met during my scientific career when I was in the lab, the people are amazing. It's just, I'm so proud that uh, all my friends from the university, from the PhD, they are still working so hard uh, to give answers to problems that we face, that patients face. I enjoyed being in research very much. I can understand, though, the difference because research is is definitely the long game. Some uh, investigators work on a project for the span of their careers. I know one researcher who's been working on this same gene for 20 years now. And so I can understand um, how that can be is rewarding eventually, but I understand how that reward is so is really a far off sometimes. Um, so in all of your studies and, and in all of your travels and every place that you've worked in and everything that you've done, what have you learned? Yeah, uh, I think I've learned that for me that passion that science is my passion. And I understood that I can work in different aspects of science, uh, being in research, being in industry, but it really motivates me. And uh, I wake up happy every morning when I know that I'm working with scientists, that I have a purpose, that it makes me very happy. So I realized clearly that that was my path. And then I've also learned that that sometimes changes are, are very are very difficult. Uh, I moved from uh, Italy to Spain and then from Spain to the UK and then the US. And every time you change, uh, it's hard. It's hard to change the topic of your job, but also to change country. And you have to start uh, everything from the beginning. But, sometimes, but at the end, uh, every time you learn something new and suddenly you, you realize that uh, you have a package with, with, a baggage with you, and uh, it is thanks to all these different experiences. And if you give uh, the best that you can and you work with passion, you want to learn and you want to change the world, because this is something that I also like. I want to think that I can change the world with the things that I do. And then at some point, uh, there is some reward for you emotionally and intellectually. Absolutely. Finding a purpose. Uh finding a gift that you can give to the world that's unique to you and what you have to offer and that passion it it really is a beautiful thing and we need that especially in science you really need passion because if not then it's really pointless It, it doesn't do anything all the facts all the figures all the science that we know and understand it really doesn't mean if you don't have meaning if you don't have a heart for it and you've really got to have it a heart yeah. for the lab. One of the reasons why I moved from the academia to the to the industry. When I was in research, I started a non-profit organization with other researchers, and it was for science communication. And I suddenly found this passion for letting everybody in the society know what science is about. Because in, especially in Spain, uh, where I was working at this time, the citizens, they pay research with their taxes and they deserve to know how scientists spend this money and why it's important and what we do. 
because it's something that sometimes is very far away from your understanding. But it's not because your health, everything, it, you need to know something about what's going on in your body, what is a disease, what are certain mechanisms that, that are behind the, this. So we started doing uh, uh, these kind of things like science cafe in, the, in different uh, cafeterias in Barcelona. And it was very nice because maybe we have like 50, 100 people, uh, all ages, and they were just uh, interested to understand uh, what is personalized medicine, uh, why vaccines are important, all type of different uh, topics and, uh, and asking questions. And I, I felt at that point so happy when I could uh, explain science to other people. So we started also to go to schools and uh, high schools. And we were doing like workshop, but it was nice to see how young people were excited when, when they were owning their project and they say, ah, okay, I have this question. How can I answer this question? How can I um, apply the scientific thinking? Because this scientific thinking is something important in life in general to think properly. What are the causes of something uh, and the, uh, what are my controls uh, when I think about something? It was good to see how young people could appreciate uh, all this process in a small um, activity. And I think all this contributed also to my choice to say, I want to do something that is a bit more social. I want to talk to other people about science. And that's why I ended up in the industry as well. That's awesome. So let's talk about, because this is a women in histology show, so we can talk about this. Um, let's talk about how your um, classes really affected the little girls. How did you, I mean, was this a whole new world for them? Did you see some girls that came up to you and said, hey, like they could be the next scientist, they could be the next anything. Did it open up their eyes to the new possibility that they, as young women, could be scientists and make really impactful differences in the world yeah this is good yeah there are there were little girls uh, coming and asking asking questions and I, I was so proud of them like please keep doing this and recently I read this uh, sentence it's not mine but uh, it now it's mine too and, and it was saying uh, why being a princess if you can be a scientist and it's true there are it's there are things that are so exciting in science and I still think that uh, a lot to do for women in science so I really encourage all uh, curious little girls uh, to um, to go into this uh, this path uh, when I was young my female uh, um, I, like the woman that I wanted to be <laughs> was uh, Rita Levi Montalcini she discovered the neurotrophic factor and mm -hmm. She was an Italian Jewish during the war and she did a research like hidden and she found the neurotrophic factor, like something huge. And I, I've always thought, I want to be a woman like that. <laughs> I don't want to be a model or anything else. I want to be a woman like that one. So I hope that there are a lot of girls out there who want to pursue this career. That's awesome. And so by that, you learned that representation matters, right? Because you knew you could do this because you saw her doing it. And so now you're doing it and now other little girls can see you doing it and they know that they can do it. And so um, number one, 
what is the name of your nonprofit? And number two, is it local? So the, the name uh, of, of that nonprofit association is uh, Biocomunicat. Bio it's like a Catalan name that is the language that is spoken in Barcelona. It means uh, like uh, communicate biology. Then uh, we have a web page and um, of course I'm not active in this group right now because I am in the US. Even if I would like maybe to do something similar here, it would be amazing. But uh, they are still working actively in, uh, in the Barcelona area. Wonderful. So, you know, here in the U.S., we have this big STEM initiative going um, that puts science at the forefront of knowledge and, well, science and math and technology. So have you considered beginning a program or expanding your program here? And you could work with the local school systems. You could work with the NSH. You could work with with really any agency and you, you kind of had that have that platform it would that be a passion for you would that be something you yes. want to explore? it would be a passion thank you for uh, bringing this up because it's so easy to keep doing what you're doing every day and uh, sometimes you have to think again in your passion you know when you have a family and kids and things like that but uh, this is something that really motivates me so I have to look into that again here in the U.S. I'm really looking forward to seeing that I'm exploring my boss and I actually have the same passion about introducing STEM to girls all over the world. And so she recently traveled to Liberia um, to do the exact same thing. And so these, you have these areas where women and and girls are not taught the same way and they don't have that same access um, to education. And so women like you um, serve to show girls around the world things that are possible. And so it's just so important to get that out there. So I'm really encouraged by your passion. So is there anything else that you want to tell us? No, I just can say thank you because it was uh, very good to talk about my project again and... uh, and also talk about my passion <laughs> once more, and it's uh, important. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode, and don't forget to check us out on your favorite podcasting site. Use the word histotalks. Awesome podcast!